If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. As fires burned in Portapique at around midnight on April 19th, Clinton Ellison was hiding in the woods, freezing. He was afraid to even look at his cell phone in case the glow of his screen would give him away. What began as a quiet night with his brother Corey at their father's house had turned into what he described as a nightmare through hell. In an interview with a reporter from another news organization four days later, Clinton said that earlier that night, he and Corey heard a gunshot. They also saw a fire burning in Portapic. You might remember that at around 10 p.m., Gabriel Wartman set his cottage and warehouse on fire. Clinton said that Corey went to check out what was happening. He called Clinton to say the fire was bad and that he should call the fire department. When Corey didn't come back, Clinton went to look for him and found him lying in the road. He'd been shot. That's when Clinton ran as fast as he could into the trees. He saw a beam of light from a flashlight bobbing behind him and was convinced the gunman was chasing him. He said that about an hour later, he made a hurried call to his dad to tell him what happened and to tell him to shut off the lights and hide. Clinton didn't move from that spot in the woods. He told that reporter that he waited to see red and blue lights in the night sky. All the while, he heard gunshots and explosions from burning buildings and saw more fires grow. He knew it was too late for anyone to save his brother. Clinton waited for help that he said didn't come for hours. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie, and this is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre. Episode 3, Emergency Response. From our previous episodes, you'll remember that by the time police arrived in Portapic on April 18th, an unbelievable amount of damage had been done. Corey Ellison was one of 13 people killed that night. Don and Frank Galenshin, John Zoll and Joanne Thomas, Aaron and Emily Tuck and Jolene Oliver, Greg and Jamie Blair... Lisa McCulley and Peter and Joy Bond all lost their lives. One of the things the 13 Hours team has been investigating is that it appears this all happened in one hour on the evening of April 18th. Since this tragedy took place, there have been many questions about the police response, questions about how long it took the RCMP to set up perimeters, how many resources they called in, how long it took them to rescue people, how they communicated. And one of the biggest questions of all, how did the gunman get away? Because as you'll hear, this story wasn't over on the day it began. 
there would be nine more victims the next day. The RCMP have not released many details about what happened that night. So in this episode, we'll try and give you a better picture of what was going on in those first few hours by piecing together what we know about the police and emergency response in Portapique. The first 911 calls came in right around 10 p.m. We have recordings from dispatchers for fire crews, Nova Scotia's provincial ambulance service, and paramedics. Here's some audio from that night, and it's a little hard to make out what's being said, but at 10.38 p.m., first responders described what they were seeing as they arrived in Portapique. Is there also a structure fire at this point? Uh, nothing like that reported. We're seeing huge flames of smoke from where we are. Get off in a distance, uh, say 10 or 11 o'clock from your location, that'd be where you'll be going for a civic. Yeah, copy, that's uh, exactly where it is. Yeah, that might be, uh, might be why they're uh, getting us to hold off. These recordings help to paint the best available picture of the emergency response, but it is incomplete. That's because you won't hear any calls or conversations from police. Police in Nova Scotia use encryption to keep their communications secret. This is for privacy reasons and operational reasons. Back in 2014, a man in nearby Moncton, New Brunswick, shot five RCMP members, killing three of them. He wasn't caught for more than 30 hours. An independent review of that incident found that at the time, officers were worried about giving away key information over radio because it wasn't encrypted. Anyone could listen, including the shooter. There was also a fear that well-meaning members of the public listening to radio communications would give away their locations by posting on social media. The report found that communication in Moncton suffered as a result, and ultimately it recommended the RCMP examine the implementation of encrypted radio. In Nova Scotia, all police radio communications moved on to encrypted channels in 2014. With that in mind, let's go back to Portapic. Remember the first officer arrived on scene at 10.26 p.m. and called for backup. A second officer was there within minutes. We know they found a witness right away who told them he had been shot by a man driving a car that looked just like an RCMP cruiser. And that police were told the shooter was a neighbor, a guy named Gabe. The witness also said he saw the shooter driving down Orchard Beach Drive toward the coast. That's the opposite direction from where he met up with police on Portapique Beach Road. Officers arrived on scene at 10.26 in the evening where they located a male who was leaving the area with an apparent gunshot wound. They learned that this male was shot while driving his vehicle and the victim indicated that a vehicle had driven by him while he was driving and that he was shot as the, as the vehicle was passing by. He did describe this vehicle as a vehicle that looked like a police vehicle. He also indicated to the responding officers that that vehicle was driving towards the beach and that there was one way in and out of the community. And it's important to note that. As Superintendent Darren Campbell said in a press conference on April 24th, police believed they were stopped on the only road in and out of the community. They knew they needed to contain the gunman. But we know that Wartman found another way out, and you don't have to look too hard at a Google Maps satellite view of the area to see how he did it. 
Before we go any further, it's important that you know it took police hours to figure out the gunman was gone, and that impacted how they reacted on the ground. The RCMP said in a press conference on April 28th that the gunman escaped just minutes after those first officers arrived on scene at 1026. This information gathered since the incidents occurred lead us to believe that the gunman had actually left the Porta Peak area through a field at approximately 10.35. Now, there was a witness that saw a vehicle that was traveling through a field, which was not very common. That's the blueberry field we talked about in the last episode. The description from police of a vehicle driving through a field sounded to me like a wild getaway, something out of a movie. But when I saw that blueberry field, I realized it was nothing of the sort. There's a back road along the side of the field. Really, it doesn't look all that different from Orchard Beach Drive and Portapique Beach Road. So he just drove out to another of these small country lanes in the area called Brown Loop that connects to the highway in two places, both of them less than half a kilometer from Portapique Beach Road. We know the police set up roadblocks and perimeters that night, RCMP Superintendent Darren Campbell spoke about that on June 4th, a month and a half after the tragedy, when he attempted to address what the police operation and early investigation looked like. The initial RCMP first responders quickly formed an immediate action rapid deployment team, otherwise known as an IR team. The IR team immediately entered the community in search of the threat. As dictated by their training, their objective was to locate and to stop that threat. This is exactly what those RCMP first responders were working towards. Within minutes of receiving the initial call, the on-duty RCMP risk manager, who was stationed within the RCMP Operational Communication Center, or the Communication Center, notified Northeast District on-call management, who immediately initiated the call-out of a full critical incident package or a critical incident team. The critical incident package consists of the critical incident commander, the crisis negotiation team, critical incident scribes, radio technicians, the emergency response team, the emergency response medical team, emergency response IT or technical support, emergency response radio operators, the tactical armored vehicle, where we refer to it as the TAV and its operator, police dog services, and the explosives disposal team. In addition to the first responders who are already on scene and continuing to arrive, the critical incident package added more than 30 resources who are highly specialized resources and skill resources to the response. But when all of those resources arrived on the scene is less clear, which is something we want to dig into in this episode. We can learn more about this from the radio chatter that night. This is from 10.44 p.m. 86, come. Go ahead. All right, uh, come up to Highway 2 and Port-a-Pack Beach Road. So keep coming up. You're going to meet a police officer there. They do have a GSW uh, victim with them. Uh, I'll try to get some more information if you need any more resources there. Continue on meet them at the intersection of the two in Port-a-Pack. So at least one ambulance was on the scene treating a gunshot victim. But we know the highway was not blocked off at that time. That's because Lori George was able to drive right past Portapique Beach Road on Highway 2 
twice. You'll remember that he first drove from his place in Highland Village to look at the fires and then drove back down the highway to get home. Lori has photos from that night taken across the river from port pic and time-stamped at 10.40 p.m. And he told me he and his brother-in-law heard gunshots right around that time. We heard four gunshots that were of smaller caliber back-to-back, like bang, 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 and then a few seconds pause, and then it sounded like a shotgun blast. But at that time, we had no idea about any shooter. Like, we never, never even thought of anybody shooting anything or shooting at people or anything like that. But that would would have been close to 1045. Lori told me it didn't make sense to him that Gabriel Wartman could have been gone by 1035 when police said he drove through that field. The RCMP have said that things exploded in the fires that night. Ammunition and also propane tanks and that kind of thing. That could explain the sounds that Lori heard. So I asked him why he thought it was gunshots. I had many years with the volunteer fire service. My first initial thought was, could be ammunition going off because of the the cottages. But after you heard them, they were too... There's a distinctive sound when ammunition goes off in a house fire. It sounds completely different. RCMP say none of their officers fired any shots in port pic that night. It just wasn't adding up to me or to Lori that the gunman could have been gone by 10.35. Police say that after killing his initial victims, Wartman drove from port pic to DeBert, a town about 25 kilometers away. In one of their late April press conferences, police released screenshots of dark, grainy surveillance video that they say placed him on Ventura Drive in DeBert at 11.12 p.m. We don't know what route he took, how fast he was driving, or if he stopped somewhere along the way, but if he left Portapic at 10.35 and was next seen in DeBert at 11.12, that's 37 minutes of travel time. Lori said the drive doesn't take that long. I would go up out through Glenholm and hit the highway. You'd be, you could okay. be from here to uh, divert approximately 12 to 15 minutes without speeding. I wanted to know for sure, so I did a little driving myself. All right. Uh, it is 2.07 on the clock, um, and I am just about to leave Debert, headed for Portapic Beach Road. I drove from DeBert to Portapic and back. The first time, I used the main highway through Great Village. That took me 20 minutes. The second time, I took a series of back roads. I turned from Highway 2 onto East Montrose Road at 3.05 p.m., and I got to Ventura Drive in DeBert at 3.33, 28 minutes. I wasn't driving fast because there was a lot of loose gravel, and I was driving a Global News-branded vehicle so I chose not to drive through port pic itself. People in the community had been asking for privacy. I even wrote a story for Global News about that. I didn't actually go down Orchard Beach Drive, where Wartman's warehouse was, or down port pic Beach Road. So to account for that, let's tack on another couple of minutes to get down to the end of that blueberry field. All of this leads me to think there could be some validity to Lori's suspicions, It's possible that Wartman could have been in town until almost 11 
and still made it to Debert by 11.12 p.m. I want to pause here for just a second. Take note, if you can, of the time on the clock right now as you're listening. This will be important a little later on. Meanwhile, on April 18th, just after 10.47, more ambulances were called in. At 11.01, more ambulances were requested. Come 86. 86, go. We have one patient, code 2, the Colchester, uh, but RCMP are requesting uh, more ambulances. Probably uh, one more coming and then uh, at least one more standby. A minute later, paramedics and dispatchers talked about whether they would be heading right into the scene or holding back. Call us medic 90. 90, go. Are we staging beforehand or um, were they wanting us to go back down? Are they were as well? No, we'll uh, keep you out on the number two there, guys, even at the uh, end of the road or Highway 2 and East Montrose, Montrose Road, just to stay back from the scene there. If I hear from them again or get direction, they'll call us. I'll let you know. What's clear is that as multiple fires raged at around 11 p.m., RCMP were not allowing emergency services to go down Portapic Beach Road. Lori George was home by that time. He decided to try and drive back toward Portapic to look at the fires again, this time with his wife Lisa. And that's when they were stopped by police and told to go home. And uh, the one cop came up and jumped out of the ditch and come towards our truck. It, like, scared that devil out of me. And he came up to my window and he said, wherever you came from, get back there immediately and lock all your doors. So we know police did set up perimeters to try and contain the shooter. But we also know they made a major miscalculation, one that proved to be fatal. RCMP have said there were three possibilities when it came to figuring out where the gunman was. He could have escaped, he could have been hiding somewhere, possibly in the woods, or he could have been dead. But the prevailing theory for police all night was that Wartman was contained in their perimeter. Superintendent Campbell explained it at a press conference on April 24th. It's a situation that's evolving, and uh, the critical incident commander uh, considers all Uh, opportunities available to them. But at that time, we had a localized uh, incident. As I mentioned earlier, it's it's essentially, you know, it's two kilometers by two kilometers, so a four four square kilometer radius that was heavily locked down with a significant number of resources. Police sources have told Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson that this decision so early on affected the way they treated what was essentially one huge crime scene. They believed at that point that the gunman was somewhere inside their perimeter, so they were moving kind of very slowly and carefully. They then shifted to believing he had likely died in one of the fires or from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. So they were moving according to two of the sources I've spoken to in essentially evidence preservation mode, which means um, they were looking for people who they thought they could still save or help, but they were trying not to disturb the scene. So that's sort of a less aggressive approach. But why did police think the gunman was still in Portapique? Remember, Wartman was a collector, and he had set fire to his collection, 
all the motorcycles, the Jeep, the truck, and some of the former police cars were burning. He owned four of those cars in total, but overnight police said they believed he had three Ford Tauruses because that's what was registered. They thought that was it. Here's Superintendent Campbell again. We had believed that he had three access to three police vehicles, and there were two vehicles burning, police-style vehicles burning on his property, and there was a third police vehicle that was located as his residence in the Halifax Regional Municipality. So police knew of three vehicles. One was at his home in Dartmouth. Two others were burning in Portapique. This makes me wonder, why didn't the police take the witness statement more seriously? The one where the victim said he saw a neighbor named Gabe driving what he thought was an RCMP vehicle toward the beach. Could things have gone differently if they were actively looking for a look-alike RCMP cruiser early that night? How difficult would that have been as more and more legitimate RCMP officers arrived on the scene? And did Wartman really leave before perimeters were set up? Or could he simply have driven right by the perimeter on the highway without anyone knowing? We know that seasoned officers have told Mercedes that the scene in Portapique was like something out of a horror movie. My sense is that they were, I don't want to say overwhelmed, but they were trying to figure out how do you make sense of a scene where, where everything's on fire and people have been shot. Um, they were trying to understand how does something like this happen? I mean, this is, as you know, a relatively peaceful rural area. It, it's not the kind of place that they expect to come upon uh, what multiple officers have described to me as a war zone. It was, I think, complicated in terms of trying to see where everything was. Uh, I've had multiple sources say that because of early police assumptions that he was dead, that may have complicated the investigation. Uh, but it would have been perhaps less the horror of what they were coming on than some of the assumptions based on police investigative techniques. So the assumption that they could not find the partner, that houses were on fire, some of which have victims in them, and they were unable to get in to determine uh, the identity of those victims uh, or could not identify them even if they were able to, and that the assumption was made that this was likely a, a mass murder-suicide. And that assumption is the one that sort of led them to believe they were not necessarily looking for a live suspect, according to these sources. Uh, I wouldn't say that it was officially ruled out, but that was the working assumption of police on the ground. And it was less about being overwhelmed on the scene than sort of putting together um, assumptions based on past investigations of what tends to lead to this kind of an event. And because there was not still reports of active shooting anywhere at that point, uh, Wartman had gone quiet. That also sort of layered on top to the belief that the gunman was was dead. Uh, and, and that's why he was no longer active. When in fact, we now know uh, he absolutely was very much alive Meanwhile, at around 11.10, first responders were trying to figure out what was happening and whether an air ambulance called the Life Flight Helicopter was needed. You guys uh, still considering Life Flight or uh, looking for Life Flight for this call? Uh, there possibly could be other victims down by the seat, but police are slowly bringing people out. So there's a structure fire. Uh, there's a person down there with a gun. Uh, they're still looking for him. The patient we have got shot by him. He 
was uh, uh, just down there observing the fire, checking out the fire. So there could be other patients around the fire that could be gone already, but we're not on shore. Uh, please, they're staging at the end of the road there on the two, uh, not letting anyone down any further. But uh, it's very vague what's going on down there, but there is for sure multiple patients around there. According to this message, police were staging at the end of Portapic Beach Road on Highway 2, more than an hour after the first 911 calls, and more than 40 minutes after the first officers arrived on scene. The radio chatter doesn't say whether police were also inside Portapic, searching for victims or survivors. But remember, Clinton Ellison said he was hiding in the woods during all of this. Okay, let's pause again for a second. Remember when I asked you to look at the time? It's been nine minutes since we did that. That's how long police originally said Wartman was in Portapique after officers arrived on scene. Nine minutes. By 11.20, nearly an hour after the first RCMP officers got there, more confusion. Do we know if these, uh, how's the assailant? No, not for sure. It's in quite a ways, the actual house. They're bringing the victims out to that intersection from the actual scene. But no, they don't know if they've caught them. I don't know. And just before midnight, the roadblock was moved back even further. We're actually going to stage at the uh, Great Village Fire Hall. It's going to be on the number two, just as you're in Great Village. So probably the best spot for us to park the vehicles there right now. They've moved the roadblock back from the scene to be safe there. During all of this, Clinton waited for help, and he wasn't the only one. He said he was eventually picked up by a tactical armored vehicle. He described seeing a fortress of police at the corner of Portapique Beach Road and Highway 2. He said there were more personnel than they knew what to do with at the Great Village Fire Hall, 10 kilometers away. That's where he was taken to be treated for hypothermia. His father, Richard, and his aunt and uncle all survived the rampage in Portapique. It's not clear if the gunmen went looking for them or knocked on their doors. Police have said the gunmen may have been targeting some people and that others who tried to help, like Clinton's brother, Corey, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. On April 24th, Superintendent Campbell described the critical incident response this way. Perimeters were established. Specialized units responded, which included police dog services emergency response team members, and request for air support helicopter. There was also explosive disposal unit, crisis negotiators, and emergency medical response teams that were part of the critical incident package. Within a very short period of time, we also engaged specialized units and resources from a neighboring division in New Brunswick. Over their lengthy course of time, first responders engaged in clearing residences searched for suspects, provided life-saving measures to victims. Telecommunication operators remained on the line with witnesses in the immediate area for extended periods of time. He never gave a clear time frame for how long it took to get all of those resources on the scene, just a lengthy course of time. And he said telecommunications operators were on the line with witnesses for extended periods of time. What Superintendent Campbell didn't say is that some of those witnesses children, on the line with 911 operators for hours, waiting for help. 
you might remember from previous episodes, the Macaulay kids and the Blair kids hid together until they were rescued. Five days after the shootings, I read Lisa Macaulay's obituary, and the last few lines really hit me. Lisa's family expresses their profound appreciation to the members of the RCMP who responded to the horrific situation for gently protecting the children, and also the anonymous 911 person who stayed on the phone with them for two hours. Two hours. Lisa's sister, Jenny Kierstead, echoed that appreciation for first responders when we spoke. You know, I've chatted with people about what could have been done differently. And I know that there's a huge grievance with the RCMP. And from my standpoint, there was, there was, nothing, there was nothing they could have done. Lisa was one of the first killed. And uh, I am deeply grateful for the courage that the first responders demonstrated to go into a situation where firefighters couldn't even enter because there was a shooter at large, not knowing where he was, who he was. There were flames higher than the tree line, and he had ammunition in his garage that was going off because of the fire. And I just can't even imagine the, the chaos, and it's dark. And so to know that the RCMP surrounded Lisa's house to ensure the safety of the children is uh, so heroic. Yeah, I feel, I feel very grateful. And yeah, it was a, a horrific, an awful situation. Yeah, that dispatcher was the kid's lifeline for two long hours and uh, they helped them through and they are, they are safe and that is a blessing. Two long hours is also a long time to wait for help. RCMP talked about why that happened in another press conference on June the 4th. Questions have been raised with respect to survivors who stayed on the line with 911 operators for a significant period of time during that initial response. It is true that survivors remained on the line with 911 operators. While they remained on the line and in contact with RCMP dispatchers, they were instructed to shelter in place and to hide while the IARD team members continued their search for the threat. IARD members set up containment around the survivors' residences, while other first responders set up containment around the community of Portapique. As the emergency response team members arrived, the gunman was still believed to be in the area. And if alive, he was lying in wait, meaning that he would be hiding ready to engage anyone at any time. This contributed to a decision to, to instruct area residents to shelter in place as opposed to evacuate. The emergency response team continued to carry out extensive tactical searches for the gunman while responding to numerous possible sightings in the area and affecting the rescue and eventual evacuation of a number of survivors and witnesses 
partly with the use of the tactical armored vehicle. I haven't been able to learn exactly when the children were taken safely out of port pic but Tyler Blair remembers how he learned what happened to his brothers. But then 3 or 3.30 in the morning, I woke up to a loud bang on the door. I kind of just knew at that point that there wasn't any good news when I opened that front door. But the RCMP were there and told me what would happen. And just that my little brothers were at the hospital asking for me, want me to go pick them up. So I got dressed and went and picked them up. Tyler says his dad, Greg, who was one of the first people killed that night, knew of the gunman, but didn't know him well. They weren't friends. They always went on to me that he was a bit of a weirdo. It's, it's pretty obvious now. But, yeah, they, I don't think they ever had any bad words or anything. So. so you don't think there was any conflict, or do you know of any conflict? No. We would have heard about it if there was. Yeah. yeah. It's so hard to wrap your mind around how one person can cause so much destruction and pain in such a short amount of time. But one thing about the timeline has always bothered me, and it was that question, first raised by Lori George. Could Wartman have been in port pic longer than police originally said, later than 10.35 p.m.? As we were putting this episode together, I asked the RCMP to confirm the details of the gunman's escape. And the answer came as a bit of a shock to me and my producer, Alex Kress. When I got the email, I asked Alex to call me. So, what does it say? So the email that I sent to police, I just said, RCMP have said that Wartman left town by driving through a field at 1035. Can you just confirm that this is what police still believe to have happened? I mean, it's been six months. Um, and I, I really, what I was trying to confirm there is that the blueberry field is the right blueberry field. And the response I got back says, yes, the investigation led police to believe this is true. The timing of this is 10.45 p.m., not 10.35 as you stated, which is completely baffling because I've just gone back to the official speaking remarks that are posted on their website, including the maps both of which say 10.35. Our understanding up to this point has been that the gunman left town about nine minutes after the first officer arrived. Now it's at least 19 minutes. That's 10 more minutes. Remember when I first asked you to take a note of the time? That was 19 minutes ago. What was happening in Portapique between 10.26 and 10.45? And could anything have been done to prevent the gunmen from getting away? Remember, Lori drove right past Portapique Beach Road on the highway right around 10.45. It wasn't blocked off. So the gunman could have done the very same thing. Police say he drove up the Blueberry Field Road, onto Brown Loop, and onto the highway. I asked the RCMP why that highway wasn't blocked off by 1045 and when they set up roadblocks. They would not agree to an interview, and they didn't answer my specific questions. I've said before that piecing together what happened on the night of April 18th has been really difficult. I'm sure it's been difficult for the police, too, in more ways than one. I know that many first responders are still struggling with the things they saw that weekend. But then as Alex and I were talking, 
it occurred to us that the families may not even know about this change to the timeline. I, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, however difficult it is or has been to tell this story, the most important thing is the families and the people who are affected. And, and that's obviously bottom line for us. And I, I think of them when something like this happens, because I think really, really do they need, you know, one more step away from finding out exactly what happened to them or to their people. Alex called John Farrington, whose parents, Don and Frank Galenchen, were killed that night in Portapique. And John said he was learning this new timeline information from us. It's just, you know, it's sad when we have to get answers, you know, and even find out facts through, you know, a second source and not, you know, not the main source. Like, I get it's been, you know, almost seven months later, but I feel like, you know, Police should be in contact with you at least, you know, once a month. Just say, hey, how are you guys doing? But a simple, you know, phone call. Guys, how's it going? You know what? No news. It's better than being silent. It makes us feel like, you know, you're not working on the case at all. John and his family weren't the only ones who learned about this from us. We spoke to three families and a lawyer who represents them. And their experience doesn't line up with what police said back at that June 4th press conference. Here's Superintendent Campbell again. Through the Assigned RCMP Family Liaison Officers, families have been advised in advance of when and what information we're providing publicly. We remain committed to providing them with meaningful, factual updates as the investigation unfolds. That was the last time the RCMP gave a public update on their investigation. And when I asked them about concerns from families who say they're learning new information about the case from the media, the RCMP said they wouldn't be commenting further. John said he's felt like he was left in the dark from the very beginning. That weekend, he tried desperately to reach his parents from Ontario, feeling panicked when they didn't answer. So your mind goes to, maybe they didn't have time to get their phone. And then my mind jumped to, maybe their phone melted in a fire. Maybe he set fire to their house, but they escaped and they couldn't get their phone. So that's, uh, that's when I first made a post with a picture of my parents and I publicly posted online for if anyone has seen these people, can you just, you know, tell them to contact their children and that's when all the messages kind of flooded in and it wasn't till I think later, I feel like I want to say evening, but you know, maybe later afternoon that uh, we, we got uh, validation that their house was burnt down from a neighbor across the road, but we still had no, no positive ID on, on death. It, uh, it was definitely a hard, a hard little while because you know you're you're just you're sitting and wondering you know you're wondering if are they okay are they in hiding are they scared are they you know and then it turns out their bodies i think weren't recovered till the 20th a few days later they were finally pulled from the wreckage i've heard this over and over from families it took an agonizingly long time to get any information from police. Harry Bond and his brother didn't even know anything was happening in Portapique until the next morning. 
and it took another full day to find out that his parents, Joy and Peter, were dead. I found out by uh, jumping in my truck and, and driving down and telling them I wanted answers, or, and I wasn't leaving without them. And it was like 35 hours later, almost 36 hours later, like after it's, from the time it started to the time I got answers. Um, it was Monday afternoon when I finally found out. I closed my eyes at night, so I can't, I can't shake it. I, I try night, night overnight. I closed my eyes, a picture of the pair of them being shot. Tammy Oliver McCurdy told me that police didn't discover her sister Jolene, her brother-in-law Aaron, and her niece Emily until 5 p.m. the next day. That's 19 hours after the rampage started. Justin Zoll said he saw his parents' property on my newscast at 6 p.m. on Sunday. Their home was burned to the ground. Family members had been trying to reach John and Joanne all day. Justin said RCMP would only tell him bodies were found in the rubble of the house. It was weeks before they were identified. This fight for information has been going on for months. I think about the people left behind and how difficult it must be to get closure of any kind when you just don't have all the answers. I talked about that with Tyler and Kelly Blair. I don't know if we'll ever know why or if he even had a reason, but I don't know. I have a million questions, but just... Who's gonna answer them? Yeah. What's that like to have that many questions and know you may never get those answers? How do you make peace with that? I don't. It's frustrating. Like the rest of the victims' families, the Blairs are trying to make sense of what happened, trying to grieve. They're also trying to care for the youngest boys, who are now living with Tyler, his partner, and their little girl. Tyler said it was never even a question for him that his brothers would move in. Well, it's it, a little crazy, but they're moving back to the house that they grew up in because... Mm-hmm. I bought Dad's old house, so it's that helped them for sure. They weren't just coming into a brand new house that they've never lived in. Um, now, I mean, I'm pretty good at keeping them busy. So, yeah, they're basically just the same old Alexander and Jack. Yeah. Crazy enough, but. Lisa McCauley's sister, Jenny Kierstead, said that when it comes to seeking answers, there's a limit to what she wants to know. It's weird. I've, I've, this is uh, something we never thought our family would be a part of. I never thought that my life narrative would include being a victim of gun violence, you know, living in Nova Scotia. Uh, but here we are. And, and I do find myself curious about... Well, mainly, you know, where it happened, you know, to make sure that the kids didn't see anything. Um, Yeah, about the gory details, no, I don't need those. I do want to, I want names of the people who supported the family and the kids. So those are the details that I'm concerned about. I find that the details of the gunman's actions really disturbing and it adds a layer to the to the horror. So I'm I'm really I'm I'm setting clear boundaries around that and just really focusing on uh, the beauty that people are offering right now. 
On April 18th, Gabriel Wartman left the community of Portapic shattered. But as we've told you, this rampage was not over that night, and there would be more victims in the hours to come. I found uh, an empty shell casings, an empty box of shells, and a pair of uh, high parade boots, Mountie boots, and a holster, gun holster. Wartman wasn't a police officer, but that weekend, he looked just like one. What was behind this meticulous impersonation? What does it tell us about the gunman? And could the timing of these terrible crimes have anything to do with the pandemic? I said this at the outset of the lockdown. This is the most dangerous social experiment ever conducted. That's next time on 13 Hours. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Kress. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson and investigative reporter Brian Hill. Emergency radio recordings for this episode provided by Broadcastify. Special thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 hours podcast. If you have a question about this episode and series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13 hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.